listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, welcome to a special episode of Managing Leadership Anxiety. This one is like none other we've done. Typically, I either have a guest on the show or Brendan and I will get on the microphones and chat systems theory or elements of my book. But today, I just wanted to spend 20 or 30 minutes talking about Edwin Friedman and his least known book, Friedman's Fables. I want to talk about it for just a few minutes, and then I'm actually going to read for us two or three of his fables just to give you a sense of this book. Here's the thing. Family systems theory was technically launched by a guy named Murray Bowen, and it became a new psychological theory that a lot of people use, particularly in marriage and family therapy. The, the big idea is that problems aren't simply inside us. Problems are also between us, relationally. And if you can pay attention to what's going on between people and how what's going on inside you infects others and how they infect you, you can get a lot further. Uh, Edwin Friedman was one of Murray Bowen's students, probably his most famous student. And what made Friedman... Uh, brilliant, or I guess probably what I should say is Friedman was brilliant, but his genius was revealed when he took Bowen theory, family systems theory, off the counseling couch and he put it in the faith community. Ed Friedman was a marriage and family therapist himself. He was also a Jewish rabbi who had led congregations. And he, he took family systems theory and he wrote a book called Generation to Generation. And this was really what put Friedman on the map where he took uh, systems theory off the counseling couch, put it into the life of a congregation. His big idea was simple. Not only families have issues between them, Friedman was saying congregations somewhat act like a family. I remember reading Generation to Generation when I was a chaplain. I was in my 20s. And I remember reading his chapter on how to interview a new congregation to figure out if they're healthy when you come and lead them, if you're clergy. And I would just say, if you are clergy and you're looking for a church job, uh, that one chapter alone from generation to generation is worth the entire book. Friedman passed away in the 1990s. And after he passed away, his daughter uh, got some of his unpublished material and put it together with an editor and, and released what's probably his most famous book, which is called Failure of Nerve. And in Failure of Nerve, Friedman simply took uh, systems theory out of the congregation and simply put it into culture and into leadership. So systems theory started on the therapy couch. Friedman then showed how it made sense in a congregation. And then Friedman's really magnum opus was um, putting it in the life of, of leaders and the life of culture. By the time Friedman died, he was consulting the US military. He was working with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the whole deal. He was really quite a fascinating guy. What makes Friedman so brilliant is he is a genius thinker. He's also wildly playful and imaginative, and he loves to be provocative. Uh, I actually think one of the ways to know if a systems theories book is any good is how provocative it is. Oh, my goodness. How provocative it is, how well it provokes you or makes you mad or gets a reaction out of you. So his least known book, in my opinion, is his best book. And this is Friedman's Fables. Uh, when Friedman was doing marriage and family therapy, he would notice patterns in people. And so he wrote a book of fables, uh, sort of like parables, where he would make people then read them. 
and then get a reaction out of them. These, of course, are fables, but I think you'll find a lot of truth in them. So uh, what makes this book so good is not only are the fables wonderful. So, for example, he talks about a perfectionist spider who makes a perfect web until a stupid fly flies in and ruins the web. He talks about an algae eater in an aquarium that wakes up one day deciding he's tired of eating everyone else's crap. He's not going to be the designated crap eater anymore. And the whole aquarium goes into disarray because they've all secretly agreed that his job is to eat their crap. Uh, he, He has a story about Cinderella's stepmother going to a psychological convention to share her side of the story, how Cinderella always was lazy and never never really thought she should do anything. She really believed this fantasy that she was a princess. And meanwhile, the stepmother's own daughters were working hard, so on. Uh, so he has these wonderful stories in here. But also at the beginning of each story, he has just a little paragraph of insight that I find phenomenal. So without further ado, Friedman's Fables, I'm going to read the paragraph of insight and then I'll read a corresponding fable, take a little musical break, and then I'll read another paragraph of insight, then another fable. I actually don't know how much of this I can read before I cross into a copyright issue. So I'm just going to share two fables with you. But I recommend this book. It's, it's, um, it's great for family gatherings. You can sit around a table and read a story together. Kids of all ages catch on to this. It's, it's super fun. All right, here's the paragraph. Friedman calls it the failure of syntax. Friedman says, the colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. Communication does not depend on syntax or eloquence or rhetoric or articulation, but on the emotional context in which the message is being heard. People can only hear you when they're moving toward you, and they are not likely to when your words are pursuing them. I I think the magic in this is when he says the colossal misunderstanding of our time is the assumption that insight will work with people who are unmotivated to change. So in that spirit, a fable called a nervous condition. When little John was about a year old, his parents noticed very thin fibers protruding through his pores. After another few months, the fibers had extended themselves and they began to form curls. The condition alarmed his parents, so they took little John to a doctor. The physician, after examining him carefully, called in several specialists, and they in turn summoned their colleagues, and after conferring for several hours, they announced, little John was unique in medical history. His ganglia were growing outside his skin. Since there was no record of this having happened before, it was not clear what the ultimate effects of such a condition would be, and Since little John was otherwise in excellent health, it was decided to do nothing for a while but observe. Of course, one immediate problem was that little John's rapidly developing extreme sensitivity to everything and everyone around him. The doctors alerted his parents, warning them that they must be super sensitive to his every move and touch. Being very sensitive people anyway, they readily agreed. As little John grew, So did his ganglia, until they trailed about him as he walked. While it was not a pretty sight, surprisingly, it turned out to have some advantages. He learned from the very beginning, for example, first from his ever-concerned parents and then from others, 
that he could always count on someone watching out for him. Indeed, he learned early in life that anyone who came into his orbit would always pay attention to his every move for fear of hurting him. He found that he could plow a path through any group of friends just by walking toward them. People would always retreat at his advance for fear of so-called stepping on his feelings. When he engaged in sports or when he just wanted to be the first in line, all he had to do was to start in the direction he chose and his approach itself proved to be open sesame. Sometimes he encountered people who had not been forewarned about his condition and then he had to point out as early in their relationship as possible. And once they understood, however, they never tried to get in his way. All of this is not to say that individuals never felt resentment toward little John. Some of his classmates, and one of his brothers in particular, who were most competitive with him for certain goals, felt handicapped by his handicap. But they never spoke it aloud. All managed to quiet their resentment with self-recriminations about their own insensitivity. And so it went. Little John graduated high school, having done fewer homework assignments than any other child who attended, and he obtained a secure job, though less qualified than most of those seeking the same position. One day, he met a woman whom he liked. Being extremely shy and not having enough confidence or experience to refute her own poor image of herself, she was thrilled at the advances of this very attentive, if somewhat strange creature. She treated him with the utmost deference, and her pity soon became love. Everywhere they went, she watched out for him, and in time, the guiding principle of her life became, how can I help this man avoid pain? But after they'd been married for a while, she began to tire. Still, she tried, for this poor man could not help himself, but it became increasingly difficult for her to be constantly mindful of his needs. She decided to confess her increasing insensitivity to her friends. She mentioned it to her family, to her minister, to her doctor. She sought professional help. All comforted her and sympathized, but could offer little practical advice, so they urged her to be more patient. She tried again to shape her existence to his needs, and then the headache started, and then the little tick in her eye. Soon she found she was losing weight. Colitis further restricted her freedom, and it was not long before her thoughts were bordering on suicide. She dared not tell little John, of course, for fear of hurting him. Why, if he knew that all of this was due to his condition, he would be inconsolable. One day, as she was walking home, she chanced upon a mother cat giving suck to her newborn kittens. As they scrambled over one another in their thirst, the mother carefully guided each one to its turn, stretching out a firm but gentle paw as she lay contentedly on her side. Then little John's wife noticed that one of the kittens had been born lame, its leg had not been fully formed, and it had more difficulty maneuvering than the others. Strangely, it was also the most aggressive. While the other kittens, when satisfied, went off to sleep, this one kept coming back to wiggle its way in front of the thirsty others. Each time, however, the mother cat pushed it away, gently at first, and then was successively harder wax. Little John's wife watched the poor kitty and the so-called 
inhumane mother. When she returned home, upon finding her husband reading in a room, she planted herself in the doorway and began to stare. A little while later, little John, desiring to enter another room, marched straight for the doorway that framed his wife. She did not budge. Closer he came, closer, never thinking actually to ask her to move. After all, he'd never had to ask anyone to get out of his way before. Suddenly he stopped, confused. What should he do? He assumed his most wounded look. Then he tried one that was more winsome and boyish, but his wife was like a rock. In desperation, he finally spoke. Move! You know I can't squeeze by. Nothing. What's the matter with you, he yelled. What are you trying to do to me? Move. Not aside, but rather directly toward him. He retreated. She continued on. He moved back faster, but still on she came. Soon he was cornered. Have you lost your mind, he said incredulously. Careful, you almost hurt me, he said pathetically. That did it. She raised a foot and stomp. And with all her might, she came down hard on one of his trailing nerve endings. He screeched, either from pain or shock. And again, she stomped and again and again. He ran past her, but she pursued. He screeched again and the scream encouraged her more. Stomp, stomp. She continued chasing him from room to room, up and down the stairs, to the cellar, to the attic, through the kitchen, to their bedroom, until, exhausted, they both collapsed and fell asleep. When little John's wife awoke, her headache was gone for the first time in months. Her eye, too, had lost its quiver. And for the first time in a very long time, she sighed without a pain and felt relaxed. But more astounding still was what she saw beside her. For when she looked over at little John, she found that his ganglia were no longer curled around him all about the floor. On closer examination, she realized that they had disappeared altogether. In fact, they had completely recoiled inside his skin. Okay, so this is probably the point where I should mention that Edwin Friedman was the Jewish child of Holocaust survivors and has very little tolerance for victim mentality. It's actually part of his playfulness and part of his provocative way. All right, one more little paragraph of insight and then one more fable. We'll call it a wrap on the episode. Uh, This paragraph is called The Demons of Resistance, and after this paragraph, he then has a series of fables on how we resist each other. This is a difficult paragraph. Uh, Sometimes Friedman writes very densely, and it can take a few reads to get the hang of it. So we'll see how this uh, goes in a podcast format. Here's what he says. The essential difficulty in trying to communicate with another is how to get past the interference of the resistance demons who inhabit the other. What makes this especially difficult is that it's the intrinsic nature of such demons to stiffen in the face of efforts to will them away. Yet 
They often vanish on the spot when our own demons no longer resist them. When, rather than trying to assault those demons head on, we can instead stimulate in others their own imaginative capacity, we can often subvert the contrariness of their demons from within. That's why all successful artists, no matter what their medium, are always careful not to give too much information to or solve the problem for the viewer. All right, you may have to hit the back 30 button on that to get another shot at that, but this this, uh, fable is about resistance. It's called The Power of Belief. One evening, a man came home and announced that he was dead. Immediately, some of his neighbors tried to show him how foolish this notion was. He walked, and dead men themselves cannot move. He was thinking, his brain was functioning, and he was breathing, and that, after all, is the quintessence of living. But none of these arguments had any effect. No matter what reason was brought to bear against his position, no matter how sensible the argument, the man maintained that he was dead. He parried their thrusts with ingenious skill. He seemed to have a way of constantly putting the burden of proof on the other. He never quite came out right and said, prove it. But that was the message implied, not so much by how he answered as by how he avoided giving any answer at all. Every now and then, someone thought, now I've pinned him down, having brought evidence so obvious no one could deny it. But then he would use his trump card. If I'm dead, you don't exist either since surely the living do not traffic with the dead. Eventually, most of his friends and neighbors quit arguing, and the handful who were left, including his own family, became increasingly afraid. Several reached the same conclusion. He had gone mad, or, at the very least, was suffering from some erratic mental process. Exhaustion from work, perhaps. A brain tumor, maybe. He needs a rest. We'll call a doctor. Perhaps a psychiatrist. Maybe the family physician or a minister. The man, however, was not upset by these suggestions. He shrugged them off without reply and finally said, I don't know what's the matter with you all. It's just absurd to think of a dead man as tired, let alone sick. His wife, literally almost beside herself, took to carrying on a dialogue within. She thought to herself, if he believes this, then how can he say that? If he does that, how can he think this? As the mixture of fear and frustration thickened, it was finally agreed that outside help must be called. A psychiatrist was invited over to interview him. After some preliminary greetings and a few routine questions, the doctor asked to see the man alone, and the man agreed, and the two went into another room and closed the door. Now now and then, an elevated voice broadcast itself over the transom, although nothing could be understood. It was clear, however, that the voice they heard getting louder always belonged to the psychiatrist. Sometime later, both men emerged, and the doctor had his jacket over his arm. His necktie had been loosened, his collar open. In fact, the button was no longer there. As for the man, he seemed totally unchanged. Hopelessly psychotic, muttered the psychiatrist. You'll have to have him committed. He's lost all awareness of reality. If you want, I'll call the hospital and see if they have room. Now, really, said the man calmly, what kind of therapy would you prescribe for a dead man? I mean, surely, sir, if it were known that you had tried to cure a man who was not even alive, 
Talk about losing one's grip on reality. The doctor started to reason with the man and then caught himself and then, with measured calm, said to the others, I haven't finished dinner yet. If you want me to call the hospital, give me a ring. A clergyman was sought. The family minister was unavailable. Which type would be best? The modern kind who had some sophistication about psychological problems? Or perhaps the good old-fashioned fundamentalist? Let's fight fire with fire, one of them suggested. As it happened, that evening, a well-known evangelist who was in town to speak at a theater nearby, when he heard about the problem, he rushed over, thinking how his success might be used to introduce the show. Once again, the group was left to strain after the voices behind the closed door. Again, nothing that was audible. Again, the rising tone. Again, never the man's voice rising. This time, the clergyman came out alone, stopped, looked at everyone, nervously kissed his little black book, and bolted out the door. Several cautiously peeked into the room. The man was fast asleep. It was now decided that the family doctor should be called. He had known the man since he was a little boy, and beside being a physician with a reputation for patience and skill, he was respected everywhere for his wisdom. He came quickly, and after one or two questions in front of everybody, he asked the man in a no-nonsense way, Tell me, do dead men bleed? Of course not, said the man. Then, the doctor said, would you allow me to make a cut in your arm, say, above the elbow? I'll treat it. There's no reason to worry about infection. I'll stop the flow immediately, and we can see, once and for all, whether you are dead. Well, dead men don't get infections, and nor do they bleed, doctor, said the man, and he proceeded to roll up his own sleeve. With everyone watching anxiously, the doctor deftly slit the flesh, and blood came spurting out. There was a gasp of joy throughout the group. Some even laughed, others applauded, though a few seemed rather to be relieved. The doctor quickly dressed the wound and turned to everyone, saying, Well, I hope that puts an end to this foolishness. Everyone was congratulating the physician when they suddenly realized that the man was headed for the door. As he opened it, he turned to the group and he said, I see that I was wrong. And then as he turned to leave, he added, Dead men, in fact, do bleed. All right, so those are just two of Friedman's fables. The book is called Friedman's Fables by Edwin Friedman. I recommend it. Uh, it's great for a group to read and discuss. It's great for people of all ages. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks on the next episode where my kids join us to talk family systems in our family and in their social environments. Then we'll be taking the month of August off. And then coming up in September, some fantastic guests. We'll go back to weekly and uh, I'll be announcing the guest lineup. I'm still finalizing some bookings. All right, everyone, have a great couple of weeks. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.